Welcome. It is so good to see everyone this morning. Um, today, our theme verse is 2 Corinthians 5.17, which is one of my personal favorite verses. As a new Christian, it, it really kind of dominated my thinking because I actually felt like so internally damaged by the sinful life that I lived before I came to Christ. And what was sad is that I grew up in a Christian home where my mom took me to church every week. I went to youth group every week. I was very involved in the church. And so I had the blessing of all of that, but none of it helped me. Uh, well, it did help me, but there were some things that uh, didn't help me. And so I lived this really destructive life in secret. And uh, when I came to Christ, uh, I, I was so like internally damaged from things that I had done that one of the things that was so encouraging and helpful for me was to think, think about 2 Corinthians 5.17. In Christ, you are a new creature. And I just said, hey, let's just hit the delete key on everything in my own life. I'm not responsible for that old life. I didn't do that. That was someone else. When I became a Christian, I am now a new person. Today's the day that my life starts. And it was so encouraging. And that is a positional, factual truth for any person who is a Christian. But it's not just positional and factual. It is supposed to be experiential. And that's one of the great blessings in my life is why I've struggled with many uh, sinful habits in my life, and there are still struggles that go on to this day um, that were based on just a lifetime of developing bad habits. But I will tell you this, a year after I got saved, I knew I was a Christian. And I knew I was a Christian, not because I look back to a day that I prayed a prayer, but because my life was completely different than the, the moment I became a Christian, God had transformed me. And as I looked at myself, the one thing that was very clear to me is I didn't change myself. The thing that was very clear to me is that God had transformed me. And so we're going to be talking about the mission statement of the church. You know, the purpose of the church is spiritual transformation. The church is supposed to be a blessing in people's lives. It's supposed to be an incredible gift. Um, like our mission and our purpose as a church. And what I want to remind you is that, yes, this is about the church. But it's not actually just about the church. It's about you. Because what God calls the church to, he calls every individual Christian to. And the church is just the place that we gather together to work together to do the thing that God has called every Christian to do. So we don't do things alone. We do it with the encouragement and help of the body of Christ. We pull resources. We pull talents and gifts to accomplish what God put us here for. And that is to be a blessing. You know, the, the church is supposed to be an eternal blessing. Uh, we're here so that people can get off the path to destruction, off the path to hell, off the path to eternal separation from God. We're, we're here to help people get saved so that their eternal destiny is different, so that they're headed for heaven, not headed for hell. And, 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 and part of that blessing is not just what happens in eternity. A part of that blessing is what happens today. We teach people what it means to have a relationship with God and how personally transforming that is today and how we view ourselves, how we view our future, how we view sin when we fall into it, how we view restoration. But the other thing is that 
that the church and for us as Christians, we're supposed to be helping people live in faith and in love and in obedience. See, obedience is something that every Christian should do. Our life should always be growing in obedience. The older we are, the longer we're Christians, the more we're around, the more we should be like Christ. If your life is as it should be, we could just line people up. When did you become a Christian? How many years ago that was? And if it was 50 years ago, you go here. 25 years ago, you go here. Uh, if it was this year, you go down at the end. Just make a line by how long you've been a Christian. Um, and we would just say, who's the most godly, faithful, spiritually mature person? Who knows the Bible the best? Who obeys the best? Who's the most loving and gracious and kind? Well, that's easy. Whoever's been a Christian the longest. Um, you want to measure a church? Same thing. Uh, how long you've been faithfully plugged into the church? Line up here. Been here for 15 years? That's you. Um, you just visited this week? You're at the end. And we should be able to line that up and say, where are the elders? Every one of them, the men on this side of the room. Who, who are the women's ministry Bible leaders? Easy. Ladies up here on this end. Because the longer you're a Christian, the more your life is transformed. Now, if that's not the case, then there's something wrong with you or there's something wrong with the church that you're a part of. Because that is the purpose and goal and end of every church and every Christian. And uh, all you got to do is read through Scripture, and that's what you see laid out. And so uh, for many of us, I just got to tell you, there's a lot of times I've thought to myself, hey, I've been a Christian for a long time. I went to seminary. I studied the Bible. And by this time in my life and with all that I've been given, I should be higher up on that line than I am. <laughs> like I'm still struggling with things that there's really no excuse for me to still struggle with. And so do I beat myself up and feel discouraged and, and all that kind of stuff? No. I just say, okay, well, what are you not doing that you're supposed to be doing? Start doing it. And so I realize in some ways there's something wrong with me also. I've been a part of church families, and there was something wrong with those church families. And there were not people that were encouraging, inspiring, and teaching and being involved in my life in a helpful way. And so I can go, yeah, I got personal problems, and the church has personal problems. And what I would say to you all, <laughs> all of us as a church, all of us as individuals, are we surprised? Well, if you've read, read your Bible, you're not surprised. You know that we have an ongoing struggle with sin, and we're not all we should be. But we still should be always thinking about how can I be transformed? So our, our, our purpose and goal as Christians and as a church is to help people get saved, to help people grow in obedience. That's eternal blessing. That is temporal blessing. I mean, think about that. God who made the world and everything in it um, tells us how to live. Yeah, that's faith for us as Christians. We just go, God is good. God is God. He's in power. He's in control. We have an obligation to obey him. And he's this loving heavenly father who knows everything. And everything he tells us is what's best. So, of course, we'll do it. I mean, even if it seems crazy, we've read the Bible enough to know that people who obey God and do the things that seem crazy, it's not crazy. 
it always ends up working out for their blessing. And every single time, as you read through Scripture, you see people who go, "Eh, I know God says that, but I feel like doing this. I think this is better. I actually got some other advice from somebody with PhDs, really smart people that I respect, and they told me to do something different than what God said. I'm going to listen to them instead of God. Every single time that happens results in destruction. So we know that. So we want everybody to obey God out of faith because they know he's good and smart and always has their best interests at heart. We also want people to obey out of love. That's just a heart that says, God, I love you. And ultimately, even if what you told me wasn't the best thing, I love you so much, I'm doing it anyway. See, that's how we live as Christians, and that's our purpose. You know, there's a third purpose of the church, and that is that as we gather together, we love each other, we encourage each other, we support each other, we help each other, and we are not in life alone. We don't ever face hard things by ourselves because we have a loving Christian family to go through everything we go through with us. That's God's purpose for the church. And we're going to be talking today about transformation. And uh, one of the things that I shared is that uh, mission statements are not scripture. <laughs> They're things people came up with. And, and I didn't come up with our church mission statement. But one thing we don't do is we don't come up with mission statements and then correct scripture with it. So when you read a mission statement and you just go, well, if I do this, then I've got to disobey this verse. Like, that's not what we do. Uh, If a mission statement makes you think you should disobey what the Bible says, we'll toss out your mission statement or get a better understanding of it. And so I love this mission statement. There are places you could misunderstand what it means. But I love this mission statement. It's really good. And uh, it is biblical. We've been going through that and explaining that. So this is our mission statement. Foothills Church exists to glorify God. That means we worship him, we honor him, we obey him, we love him. We show up here to sing. You know, we're not just coming in to see if we like the songs. Like, we can't wait to get in this room with other people that love God and worship God. And that's not just singing. It's the way we live our whole life. Everything, even if we eat food or if we drink something, everything we do is for God's glory. And then the second thing is we make disciples. What is making a disciple? Well, it just says baptize them. That's salvation. And in the New Testament church, when you got baptized, that welcomed persecution into your life. And so when Jesus is walking around telling people, unless you hate your father, brother, mother, sister, and even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Um, That was not brain surgery for anybody who heard that. Because the Christians... When they accepted Christ and went down and got baptized, some of them were killed. In fact, the Apostle Paul went around, running around, tormenting and torturing people to try to get them to blaspheme God, to try to get them to reject Christ. And so baptizing, today we cheer and clap and give people a Bible, and it's this wonderful experience. In the New Testament period, you got baptized, man, that could be a nightmare in your life. But baptism is a symbol of the, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, water baptism is. So when he says baptizing them, that's actually talking about salvation. Water baptism 
is a picture of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is what saves you. When the, when you, the moment you become a Christian, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. That's Romans 6, and that's 1 Corinthians 12, I think it's 12 and 14, or 12 or 14. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit saves you. Water baptism is just a picture of that. And then the other part of discipleship, first, you get people saved. And secondly, you teach them to obey everything that God says. So you have to know what Jesus says, and then you need to know how to do it. And that's what the church is about. Not just teaching people what God says. Yes, that's part of it. But it's teaching them how to obey. And then, how do we do this? We unconditionally accept people. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Uh, Romans 15, 7. Often people think, oh man, this is when our mission statement becomes man-centered. We unconditionally accept people where they are. So yes, we worship God, but actually, no, we worship you. Because if you come in here and you want to proclaim things that aren't true, uh, we, we will just treat your ideas as though they're equal. We will not call sin, sin. In fact, our priority is to make you happy and feel good. And they think that that's what unconditionally accepting people where they are is. Um, except if you read Romans 15, 7, it says accept people for the glory of God. Another way to say that would be to genuinely love people. And sometimes as we genuinely love people, we tell them things they don't like. We address things in people's lives in ways that they don't like. We correct people's thinking, which they don't like. And so if you think unconditionally accepting people where they are means we worship people, no, we don't. We do that for the glory of God. And what that means is we look at people in all their brokenness, in all their difficulty, and we accept them for the glory of God. We say, you are a person made in God's image. God loves you, and I love you. And it doesn't matter where you are or what is wrong with your life, you are welcome here. We don't expect you to change yourself and clean yourself up before you walk through this door. No, show up. We love you exactly how you are. You need to change nothing. We welcome you. And if you show up today and you're not different by tomorrow, that's okay. We love you anyway. As you go through these challenging struggles, as you have ongoing sin in your life, as you need mercy and grace and kindness, we still love you. You don't have to change. We realize that you're not here to serve us. You're here to serve God. And we look at everybody and we say, God's forgiven me. God has been merciful to me. And he still is in the same love and mercy that I need from God, the same kindness, compassion, and grace that I need from God in my life, I'm going to show to you. And so that's that loving environment. But we are encouraging a transforming life in Christ. We want to encourage this transforming life in Christ. And um, that is not optional. It's not like, hey, come on in, come hang out. If you want to be transformed, wonderful. I mean, we kind of encourage it. It's not really a necessity. We just encourage it. Um, no, we encourage a transforming life in Christ, and that's encouraging. It's loving. It's kind. But it's not a lack of necessity. And so it's a big deal. It's what we do because we love people. And uh, so 
This is powerful. It's a transforming life in Christ. See, it's Jesus that provides the transformation that we need. I remember I had a neighbor who was a hell's angel. And uh, I always make friends with my neighbors. And this is Michelle and I were kind of newly married. And there was a hell's angel next door. And so I went out and got to know him. I used to hang out with him every day. He'd come home from work. He had this truck in his backyard. I'd just go hang out and talk to him. And so he had this really old truck. And he was redoing it. Man, this guy was like a master welder. He could fix anything. He could do anything. And one of the things I talked to him about is he's like, yeah, just got out of prison. Been in prison for five years for the stuff I was doing with the Hells Angels. And while I was in prison, I realized my life, my life was a nightmare and I need to change it. He's like, guess what I found out? There's tons of guys in prison <laughs> praying to Jesus to change their life. They become Christians because they want God to change their life. He says, I don't need that at all. I need nothing to do with God. I just thought about it, and the way I was living my life was stupid, and I don't want to do that anymore. So he actually had his license suspended for five years, and he had this five-year project of rebuilding this truck. And so he had a good job. He rebuilt this truck, and he never got behind the wheel, not in five years. And he just said, I don't need God to change. I'm going to change myself. And guess what? Quit selling drugs. Quit doing violence quit breaking the law, and uh, there's a lot of good things that came in his life. But guess what? Ultimately, who cares? Because when he dies, he will forever be separated from God. We are not a group of people who are trying to externally fix broken things in people's lives. We are a group of people who are introducing people to Jesus Christ, and because their hearts have been transformed by him, that works its way out into the way that they live. And so it starts with salvation, and then it follows up by living out what God's done in our life. All right, so that's kind of where we're headed this morning. <laughs> I want to tell one more story before we jump into the Bible. So um, I was telling you about how I grew up in church, and I'll never uh, forget the day this, this youth pastor comes to me. And... Um, I, just in thinking about it, about thinking back on it, um, my dad was a Mormon, and I had not gone to the Mormon church growing up because my mom was willing to fight with my dad. I remember one time my dad was going to take us to church or something, and he's walking out the door. <laughs> my mom, like, grabbed his waist and said, you're not going, and you're not, you know, she's, like, trying to stop him, and so he's headed out the door, and she's holding on to his waist. You know, I did She's watching today. <laughs> I wonder what she'll think of me telling the story. But anyway, she, uh, sorry, Mom, uh, she grabbed my dad's waist and, and was funny. I'm like this little kid watching this happen, and my dad, like, falls over into the living room with my mom, like, holding on to him. And he just kind of stood up and laughed a little bit and said, okay, fine, I won't go. So, um, so that's kind of how things worked out in my life and in my family growing up. And when I was um, 16 years old, my dad says, the only reason you're not a Mormon is because you haven't gone to the Mormon church. So I just decided, okay, I want to go, and I want to hear. So me and my dad went to the Mormon church, and there was a Mormon bishop that ran that whole thing, sat down teaching me these Mormon classes. And I remember that, that so distressed and panicked my mom. And so she goes to church. She's talking to the pastors at her church. She's asking them to pray for her. 
and the youth pastor finds out. And so this youth pastor, um, I, I remember I just kind of was leaving church a little bit early. So I got, got into the lobby, and it was a big church, but there was nobody out there. And as I walk out into the lobby, this youth pastor walks up to me, which means that he had been praying and thinking about me the whole morning. And he walks out into the lobby, and he, inter- he intercepts me. And I can't remember all the details of the conversation, but one of the things that he says is he just says, you shouldn't be going to church with your dad, and this is really stressing out your mom. And I just remember looking at him and being so disgusted and so angry. And I just looked at this guy, and I said, you know, who do you think you are to tell me not to go to church with my dad? You're like some stranger. You think that what you have to say matters more to me than my relationship with my own dad. (laughs) And I hated that guy, and I never went back to church. Like, I left. That's when I left, quit going to church. I don't think I started attending church again until after I became a Christian. So years later, I'm a youth pastor, and I'm praying for some kids in youth group. And I'm thinking, man, i got to go have a conversation with them and with their parents and they're not going to like it. And I remembered that day that I hated that guy who was willing to talk to me. And I had two thoughts. One, if I had to make a list of people who cared about me, he was one of them. None of the other pastors talked to me. Um, There were tons of other people who probably watched that and did and said nothing. And then I thought about, man, how would that feel for this youth pastor. He's praying for me. He wants to help. And then he thinks to himself, man, I messed up because I really wanted to see his life help, but he's never come back to church. Man, I really messed that up, like the burden that he must have felt. And, you know, I have multiple thoughts, but one of them was that he might as well have offended me and I might as well have never come back because nobody else in the church was helping me. I might as well have been gone. Because if I just show up and I'm comfortable and nobody addresses anything, well, what good is it anyway? And then secondly, we should be really careful (laughs) how we address and talk to people. I thought about the fact he could have come up to me and said, hey, um, Roger, I understand you're going to the Mormon church with your dad. Tell me about that. Why are you doing that? Um, What do you think about all that stuff? I would be really interested to hear, like, what are they teaching you and how are you thinking about it and how are you responding to it? Would you be up for grabbing coffee every week or two and just kind of talking about how that's going? And I think to myself, that would have been a much better way of approaching it and dealing with it. And he could have helped me and encouraged me and shepherded me through these things I was hearing. And so as a church, we got to be good at what we do and we got to be careful about what we do. But we actually need to not forget that our purpose is to encourage a transforming life in Christ. And when we have a church with people standing in the 50-year mark, 25-year mark, 30-year mark, and their life is not transformed, uh, we need to step it up a little bit. We need to be willing to push the envelope a little bit because we don't have to change people tomorrow. But if people are sitting around and in years they're not different, we're doing something wrong. So let's look at what Scripture says about a transforming life in Christ. Um, We're going to read this first point. We're going to read a couple 
uh, longer passages, and then we'll go more quickly. But here's the first one. I want you to know that spiritual transformation is a fact for believers. It is a fact for believers. This is one of the things that we use to evaluate how we're doing and what's happening and whether or not to know if a person's a Christian. If you're a Christian, your, your life is transformed. And so that's one of the grids that we use. The Apostle Paul says, test yourself to see if you're in their faith. And you are in the faith unless you fail the test. And part of that test is transforming life. So that's one of the things we measure. But I want to encourage you by something else. Um, there's tons of people who have been Christians. They've been Christians for a long time, and their life hasn't changed. They're struggling with the same sins today that they were struggling with 20 years ago. They battle certain things that they just can't seem to get away from. They feel like temptation is overwhelming. And I just want you to know that if you feel like you're transform not transformed, in one sense, that's not true. If you are a Christian, you are transformed. Like, think about 2 Corinthians 5.17. Um, oh, you should open your Bibles there or your phones there if you can. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You are a new creation. When I became a Christian, I was a new creation. Nothing in my life had changed yet except my heart, but I was a new trans, uh, a new creation. So you are transformed and you are a new uh, creation. And that is something positional between you and God. When God saves you, you are changed. You are different. That is a fact. And so um, you are a new creation. It is a fact for every believer. It goes on. It says, the old has passed away. The new has come. See, you were under God's wrath. You were God's enemy, but now you are God's friend. You are God's child. God loves you. And, and even if you don't change, like our salvation is not because of, we're not getting there. We're not earning. It's like because you struggle doesn't mean you're not a believer. Here's what I love about this passage. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says you are a new creation. And then it goes on, and do you know what it describes? It describes the work of Christ. Uh, let me just read it to you. It says, verse 18, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You know, what God did to us, we then become spokespeople of that in the lives of other people. That is that Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We positionally have been given the righteousness of Christ. God saved us, not because of what we did, but because of what Jesus did. Isn't that amazing? You are a new creature in Christ, and then it doesn't say, because you do all these good things, because you're making this kind of great spiritual progress. 
It's based on the work of Christ. So it is a fact that if you are a Christian, you are a new creation. I want to show you that also in Ephesians chapter 2. So I'm going to read Ephesians 1, 3, and then we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to show you theologically, I want you to understand what happens to a person, what happens to you when you become a Christian. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So God chooses us before he made the world. Read Romans. It talks about God choosing um, uh, a couple people, um, Jacob and Esau. And he says, I picked them. Before anybody did anything, it had nothing to do with them. It was me picking people I decided to pick. God did not look into the future to see if you'd be good enough to be saved. Uh, Romans 3, 10 through 12 says there's none righteous, not one. There's none who seeks for God, not even one. If God was looking into the future to see you, he would have said, okay, they're not worth it. Don't save them. So the good news is that God doesn't pick people because of who they are or how good they are. He picks people just because he feels like it. And that's actually what it tells us, Romans 9 through 12. Read it. God picks people just because he wants to. But look what it says. It says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. And I want you to know something. That is positional. You are holy and you are blameless because of Christ. So it's positional. It is a fact. But one of the things we're going to learn is it's not just positional. That positional transformation results, is not caused by, but results in transformation and actually the way we live our life. It goes on, it says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why did he do it? Because he wanted to. According to the purpose of his will. Verse 6 to the praise of his glorious grace. So it's for God's glory, right? It's for his glorious grace. So we're all going to show up in heaven, look around and go, man, you don't deserve to be here, but what an amazing thing that you are. And somebody's going to look at me and they're going to say, wow, God is so gracious. You don't deserve to be here, but God puts you here. That's spectacular. And so everything God does is for his own glory and grace. But we know that. That's the first part of our mission statement. Although that's not why we know it. That's why it's the first part of our mission statement. Look at Ephesians 2. Amazing salvation passage. It says, And you were dead in, your, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So um, here's one of the things we need to recognize. We are born sinners. Like we are sinners. That is who we are. And then we live out that sinfulness you are a sinner because you're born a sinner. You are not a sinner because you do things wrong. You were a sinner before you did anything wrong. The moment you were born, you were a sinner. So we're sinners. We're born spiritually dead. And then, guess what? We live out sinfulness. And so uh, am I separated from God because of the things I did? <laughs> yeah. That is, it is because of the things I did. But why did I do those things? It's because of who I am spiritually dead, separated from God. So it just says that you were dead. That's who you were. That's, you're separated from God. But you used to walk. 
in which you once walked. That's past tense because he's talking to believers. You're not walking that way anymore. But you once walked that way. You were a sinner and you lived out that sinfulness. Following, like that's an action word, the course of this world. Following, another action word, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Um, that's Satan, in case you don't know. You were living your life following Satan. When you become a Christian, you quit, quit following Satan. You start following Jesus. Among whom we all once lived. So that's, how we, that's what we actually did. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So, I mean, we're just living out who we are, and we're under God's wrath, and um, that's just what we do. But then when we got saved, actually, we quit doing that. <laughs> that's that 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Do you always just do whatever you feel like doing? Do you justify whatever you feel like doing? When you do something that God hates, are you happy about it? Do you feel good about it? Do you live in sin and move in with your girlfriend, boyfriend? Do you commit some other kind of sin? Do whatever, and you do it, and you're happy about it, and you like it, and you, you look at the sinful stuff that God says not to do, and the more you do it, the happier you are, and you kind of feel like, oh, my goodness, if I become a Christian, I lose all the fun in my life. That's you. You are not a Christian. Because Christians feel convicted. They have a desire to obey God. It's kind of like David. He did whatever he wanted. He saw Bathsheba over the wall. She looked good to him. Has an affair. Thinks, oh, no, I'm going to get in trouble. Let me kill her husband. And so he kills her husband to cover it all up. But Psalm tells us what's going on inside his heart. He just says, day after day, my body wasted away. I was broken and grieving. Your hand was heavy on me. You see a person living a sinful life and enjoying it, they are not a Christian. Um, and yet we got this broken grid about how we figure out if somebody is a Christian. Let's line people up, tell them if they pray a prayer, we'll give them some candy and we'll cheer for them. And then when they pray the prayer, oh, that's a Christian. And then it says in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trans trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us I mean He's showing his grace and his kindness uh, for the glory of God. See how that's like fitting in here? I mean, like, I don't know. I could like just, let's just read, let's just randomly flip Bible verses and just put your finger on a page and just start reading. And it talks about that we exist for God's glory. It's everywhere. But then he goes on. He's seated us in the heavenly places so that he might show his grace and kindness toward us in grace. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's God's grace, and God gives us faith in him. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one should boast. So, <laughs> like, is there this pressure? Man, I got to change. I got to be different. I got to be good enough, or I can't make it. Like, do, we, do you feel that pressure in your life? You shouldn't. 
And in fact, if you're constantly feeling not good enough, it's because you don't know what the Bible says or because you're not a Christian. See, a Christian takes a step back, and the more that they blow it, the more they realize God's gracious and loving and merciful and forgiving. And I'm not trying to earn my place before God. And it's interesting, everybody stops reading there. You want to know what's amazing? Is that the same power of God that saves you transforms you. Did you know that? Um, Does God save us by grace? Was it an incredible miracle and it's totally dependent on God? Yes. Well, what about a righteous life? That flows from God's same power. Look at verse 10. Nobody ever reads this, not ever, but rarely. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works. You know, God saved you for good works. Have you ever thought about that? And this is like predestination and salvation. People struggle with that. Hey, there's all kinds of things in the Bible. We don't cross out predestination. We don't cross out the reality that we make real choices. Those things are both true and they fit together. And we'll talk about more about that some other time. But I do want to just say this. The same predestination that saves you predestines you to do good things. You ever think about that? See, God gets the credit for your salvation, not you. But your good works, guess who gets the credit for that? Well, I don't know. I should read here. It says, uh, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. That's talking about the way you live. God prepared beforehand for you to do good things. Now, think about that. Every time you ever do anything good, you can walk away from that going, yeah, I studied, I prayed, I said, God, give me an opportunity to care for someone. I was diligent. I was working hard to do it. Um, God, help me love my wife more. I'm really frustrated. I know I'm not being the person that God wants me to be. Let me pray for that. And then you do it. You're working hard. You're being diligent. You're studying scripture. You're getting advice. And then you actually do it. And when you look back, you go, man, I did a really nice thing yesterday. (laughs) I did a really cool thing. But actually, the only reason I did that is because before I was ever born, God decided I would do it. Who gets the credit for that? And you realize... That as I see God's power working its way out in my life, um, do you know that's why people that are spiritually transformed and amazing are still really gracious, humble people? It's why they're still really merciful to people who are struggling. How can this guy who's got his life together and he's doing it all right be so gracious to some knucklehead who just day after day does stupid stuff? Well, it's because we actually understand That the spiritual transformation that happens in us is God's gift to us. And we don't take credit for it. And we realize that God's been gracious and merciful with us. And we're gracious and merciful with everyone else around us. The Pharisees trying to clean their lives up from the outside. So you can get religious people that are just like my neighbor. I don't need God to change. I'm going to change on my own. And they call themselves Christians. And they show up in church. And they're prideful, arrogant, judgmental, and hard on other people because they are, don't understand how people change, or they're just being religious apart from a relationship with Christ. Okay, so that's one. It's a fact. See how all that works out. Uh, here's number two. It's a process. 
Um, but you knew that, didn't you? <laughs> you woke up in the morning and you looked in the mirror and you're like, oh, it's a wonderful fact, but I still, still see a lot of problems in this guy or this lady, depending on, you know, who you are. For me, it's a guy. I look in there and go, man, this guy's got lots of problems. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 2 says this, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Like it's a process. We're growing. And how does that happen? Because we're digging into God's word. We trust it. We know it. We're putting it into practice. And we're growing up into our salvation. How often throughout the New Testament does Paul say, live in a manner worthy of the gospel? Like he says that, right? Live up to it. We're, we're trying to live out who we are. We're not trying to work our way into heaven. We're trying to work out the fact that we're going to heaven. And so it's a process. And uh, for that reason, we're not hard on ourselves. We don't beat ourselves up. You know, one of the things I love about Romans chapter 5 is it just talks about the more you sin, the more God's grace there is for you. And he says this in Romans 6.1. He's just like, you can't sin more than God has grace and forgiveness and kindness. So that's a truth. And then a bunch of people might say, well, heck, then let's just sin for the glory of God so we can see how much uh, grace and forgiveness he has. But this is what he says, Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that make grace my abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Not possible. <laughs> it's just crazy. We look around at people whose lives are committed to a life of sinfulness. They don't care what God says. They don't feel guilty when they do things wrong. And we say, oh, no, no, they're Christians because I remember when they prayed a prayer. It's like that's just the world we live in, isn't it? Complete separation of what does it mean to actually know Christ. And I just tell you what, if we can't get that straight, how are we ever going to help anyone? Man, we're not saved by works, but... Man, when God saves your heart, you're a different person. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Romans 7, 14 to 28, Paul talks about his battle with sin. He says, I look around, I find myself doing the things that I hate. And the things I really want to do, I don't do. Hey, does that describe us sometimes? See, the thing is, is that we've been freed from the power of sin, but not freed from the presence of it. That's a lifelong struggle. And sometimes... It's really hard to tell the difference in a moment between somebody who's struggling with sin and somebody who's not a believer. And so we've got to be careful. In fact, um, there's a parable where um, the workers say to the farmer, should we go out and tear up the wheat and tares, all the false believers that Satan has planted? And he says, no, because you might accidentally pull up some good wheat with the chaff. So just wait. God's going to sort that all out at the end. So we're not running around trying to kick people out that we don't think are believers and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the truth is, it also says test yourself to see in your, if you're in the faith. It also says when talking about leaders, evaluate the fruit of their life. And you'll know them by their fruits. What do you see working out in a person's life over time? We're not supposed to bury our heads, stick it in the sand. But we also recognize that ultimately God chooses. And I'll just tell you, when it comes to you, you need to think about, am I a Christian? You should think about Matthew 7, um, uh, verse uh, 12 to like 28. Matthew 7 talks about people standing before God saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons and do miracles in your name? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. 
The most terrifying thing is people sitting in church for years talking about how they're Christians. Everybody tells them they're a Christian. They're in for a shock because they're going to die. They're going to stand before God, and he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And so uh, these are things we should think about. Um, I want you to know that um, it's a process. Change is a process, but change is possible. Like that's not hard to figure out, right, that change is possible. I was thinking about uh, Peter or the Apostle Paul. When you look at his life, he says, you've heard about my former manner of life, how I used to torment Christians and kill them, but now look what I'm doing. Like, he was transformed, right? Not the same after. He's not like, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I still do like beating up. I'm a Christian now, but I still do like beating up on these people like Stephen. And uh, stonings are cool. No, that's not what he does. He says, I hate that stuff. I used to be like that. I'm not like that anymore. Remember Peter? Um, One of the things I love is in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says, when they saw the boldness of Peter. Let's see if I have that. There it is. Um, when, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So they're looking at Peter and Paul and they're going, man, or Peter, and they're saying, he's different because he was around Jesus. Now I just want to ask you a question. Are you different? And the longer you've been around Jesus, the more different you are. Is that true? That's what was true in Peter's life. Did Peter never blow it? No, because you read in Galatians. Uh, he got caught up in hypocrisy. Paul opposed him to his face in front of everybody. Says, you're a hypocrite, and you've like backslid, and you're doing all this stuff to, to Gentiles because you're trying to be accepted by the Jewish uh, religious people. He got confronted to his face in front of everyone. And then, but you look at that, and at the end of, uh, when you look at Peter, the letters that Peter writes, he talks to the church and just says, as your fellow elder. He could say, I'm the apostle. I was with Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the one who told me, that, you know, all this stuff. And you piddly elders. Like, that's not how he approaches. He says, hey, I'm your fellow elder. He's an apostle. And he writes to a church. And he's just this loving, gracious, kind, merciful person throwing his arms around people. Just a humble man transformed by Christ. And also he writes about Paul and he says, man, our beloved brother Paul, he doesn't say that Paul, he, he laid into me in front of a whole church. I hate him and never talking to him again. Um, he says, no, I love Paul. So was Paul transformed? Was Peter transformed? Actually, just read through the Bible. Think about all the believers you know. When they, people come to know the Lord, they're not the same after. And then uh, what causes spiritual transformation man three really important good things what's what what the spiritual uh, transformation is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit personal effort and faithful ministry do you know that you're transformed because of something God does in your life You are transformed because you diligently discipline yourself and say, I've had bad habits that I have. I'm going to figure out what God says my good habits are supposed to be, and I'm going to practice those. And you work hard. And you are spiritually transformed because you show up every week in a group of people who are personally being transformed. And so you look around and you're like, there's somebody struggling more than me, but look how they're growing. 
a new believer, you're inspired and encouraged by that. And you just go, man, I've been a Christian for 10 years. Joe's been a Christian for like three months, and look, he's already changed. And it encourages you. And then there's people who have been transformed longer. And you're going up to them and you're just saying, man, I see you've been down this road. I see how you parent. I see how you relate to people. I see these things that you're doing, the way that you've been transformed. I want to be like that. I need help. I'm going through something that you went through. Can you talk to me? Can you help me? And so there's other people. You, you see where you've been. You're inspired by young, faithful people who are doing better than you were at their, at their length of being a believer. You have these older, more mature people working into your life. And you're in a whole church of people who love you, who are gentle, who are gracious, who are kind, who pray for you. When they see a flaw in your life, they pray for you before they talk to you. And then when they do come talk to you, Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself lest you be tempted. And when they come talk to you, they're not prideful, they're not judgmental, they're not hard on you. They are merciful, they're gracious, they're kind. They're saying, hey, there's this thing in your life that I'm seeing, and I know sin's destructive, and I'm seeing sin, and you're headed down a road to, road to disaster man, don't do that. And can I help you? Can I encourage you? So they pray for you first, and then they come alongside and they talk to you. And if you're a prideful, arrogant person who when somebody comes to you in a gracious, loving way, you just say, go pound sand. Um, this is what happens when you're in a biblically faithful church is actually they're not the only ones who talk to you. Everybody is talking to you. You've had the same conversation like eight or nine times by people who don't know each other. They're not gossiping about you. They're not slandering against you. They're all coming to talk to you because they all love you. And so you tell this guy to go pound sand, but then next week somebody else comes and talks to you. You tell him to go pound sand, and then somebody else comes and talk to, talks to you, and you go, hmm, and there's a lot of people seeing the same things. Maybe actually the problem is me. And also, all those people are praying for you. And then sometimes when you don't listen to anybody and it's a big enough deal, you actually have a whole group of people that come talk to you. Remember Matthew 18? If you see anybody in sin, go talk to him in private. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, take two or three more with you. And they'll talk. And then hopefully with all these witnesses that will end up being helping the person. And then if they refuse to listen to even those people, tell the whole church. Tell the whole church to go after them, to love them, to pray for them, to encourage them. And if they refuse to even listen to the whole church, let them be a tax gatherer. Let them be as a tax gatherer or a Gentile. Have nothing to do with them. Isn't that what 1 Corinthians 5 says? This person calling himself a Christian, living in the church, don't even eat with him. And then what happens is you got a guy going, well, I've been telling everybody I'm a Christian, but actually nobody in my church will even eat with me. So that protects the reputation of the church. That also says to a person who's blind, who's hard-hearted, who's unwilling to deal with things in their life, it says actually... Um, I shouldn't deceive myself into thinking I'm okay because, man, they let anybody in church, but they won't even let me in. And at the same time, everybody's praying for that person. 
And um, then when they repent, <laughs> they get welcomed back in. See, those are all the things that are supposed to be happening in a biblically faithful church. And uh, we wonder why you got people who have been going to church for years and years and years and their life's never changed. Well, it's because they don't go to a church like that. It's because people have disregarded everything that God says. You want to know what gets in the way of the transformation that God wants in us? Um, I'll give you a list of things that get in the way of spiritual transformation. One is a lack of salvation. Tons of people aren't changing because they're not actually believers. So a lack of salvation leads to a lack of transformation. Um, Ignorance. You know, there's people who come to church for years and nobody teaches them the Bible. They don't actually even know what it says. They haven't read all the Old Testament stories. They have not read about the flood. They have not read about the Tower of Babel. They have not read about how God sent Israel into the nation of Canaan to kill every man, woman, and child. And they haven't thought about that and what it means. Like, they, they don't have this context of actually understanding what the Bible says. So they're not saved. They're ignorant of what Scripture says. And they've showed up to a place, they look around, and everybody who calls himself a Christian, no one lives like it. So they've had no example. When they go home, they have a mom and dad who say they're a Christian, but mom and dad don't live like Christians. So they've actually never seen it. And another reason is pride and arrogance and an unwillingness to hear from other people and learn. Uh, The Bible calls that person a fool. And uh, did you know that Satan is working behind the scenes to accomplish all of those things, right? Uh, The Bible talks about people he puts in church to manipulate, to get them to do his will. Now, the Bible says there's people like that. There are Christians that Satan manipulates to do his will. Some of the specific things mentioned about that are anger and lack of forgiveness. Those are satanic things that Satan uses. Pride, jealousy, selfish ambition. You ever see in a church people start fighting? That's not fair. Why do they have that? How come I don't have it? They're prideful. They're jealous. And instead of working on people's spiritual transformation, they people just start fighting with each other. Um, distraction. You know, that's one of Satan's things, things Satan wants to do. Instead of working on things that are spiritual, spiritually beneficial, do something else that won't really help. Like that's Satan, that's what he's doing in the church. And uh, so that's his goal to do that. I want to close by just reading... Um, two verses. I'm going to read them to you and then I'm going to close in prayer. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Like this is a message to our church leaders. Um, I'm not saying they're not doing this, but this is a message to them. That God may perhaps grant this person repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. It's talking about church people. Second Corinthians, this is an exhortation to the whole church family. 
And it's just talking about you, how they need to be forgiving. It's just one of the things that God says, so obedience. So he's telling them to be forgiving. And then in verse 11, he gives a reason, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. I want to tell you guys something. Every single time as a church we talk about doing something God tells us to do, guess what I see? I see Satan working to distract, pride, different things to kind of create problems. And, I, and those things have not showed themselves in a big way at this church since I've been here. But every time we do anything, I start to see satanic manipulation. We're not ignorant of his schemes. We've read the Bible before. And so for us, man, let's just say, what did God call us to do? And let's do it. So we need to encourage a transforming life in Christ. Let me pray. God, thanks for giving us your word. Lord, I do ask that you would help us to personally and individually be transformed and that our, ch our church family would be transformed because we are a group of people who genuinely know you. God, we know what you say. We are diligent and careful to obey it. In your name, amen.